Hey everyone, it's Maurice. If you've been listening to the show and you like what you hear, you can become a patron of Revision Path today. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and you can join at the $5 level to get behind the scenes exclusive access on upcoming interviews, new articles, and episodes of our special patrons only podcast. Join at the new $20 level and you'll get everything at the $5 level plus a free Revision Path logo enamel pin plus a swag pack full of goodies. So check it out today, patreon.com forward slash revision path. This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook is all about building towards a greater tomorrow. So I asked product designer Keon Lavi where he sees Facebook going into the future. I think Facebook has a lot of opportunities. We might see like a VR world or a VR version of Facebook in the future. We might see uh, things that expand outside of our phones and our tablets and our computers. I would hope there's a world where where Facebook is just like an infrastructural tool to help people stay connected. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Are you looking to hire someone for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. This week, College Vine in Cambridge, Massachusetts is looking for a senior product designer. And Glitch is looking for the following positions for their New York City office. An office administrator, a social media specialist, and a VP of people. If you're looking to diversify your designer dev teams, then post your job listings with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word for you through our podcast and our weekly job alerts. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I wanted to talk about our sponsors, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Glitch is the friendly community where everyone can discover and create the best stuff on the web. I'm talking cutting-edge VR experiences, smart bots, games, useful tools to help solve problems at work, There's apps that help advance important causes. I mean, you name it. People have built over a million projects on Glitch for you to discover, and new ones are popping up every single day. Get started on making something awesome at Glitch.com. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's leading marketing platform for small businesses. Now, MailChimp may have started out just doing email. I mean, it's, it's in the name, MailChimp. But now you can use MailChimp for Facebook ads. You can use them for Instagram ads. You can use them for a lot of powerful automations. I mean, think of MailChimp more like a marketing powerhouse. Sign up for a free account today and give it a try. MailChimp. 
send better email. Now for this week's interview. We're talking with Brooklyn-based freelance designer Nicholas Johnson. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Yeah, my name is Nicholas Johnson. I'm a freelance graphic designer in Brooklyn, New York. So tell me about some of the freelance work that you're doing. I would imagine New York, Brooklyn in particular, being such a creative place. There's probably a lot of design work out there that you can can do, right? Yeah, definitely. There's always a multitude of chances and opportunities to become a self-starter with a lot of design projects, which is what I'm currently working on now, walking about and seeing a lot of designs that are implemented currently like restaurants or other businesses that I feel aren't really up to date with the modern times or the trends. And so that's really my attack avenue right now while I am working in between clients and working in between agencies as a freelancer at Current. Now, I know that we have freelancers listening. We've also probably got some in-house people that listen that want to get into freelance. Why freelancing right now? Is there a particular decision that brought you to doing this at this point? Yes. I started freelancing due to leaving my last position at the the Brooklyn Museum. It came out that the organization just wasn't a fit for me. It was mm-hmm. so great people and like great work and great experiences, but the universe deemed that it was not for me. <laughs> and so I decided to, uh, to move forward and take time to find myself in a different manner because I, I find that I'm very passionate about like representation of people of color in the design field. And mm-hmm. like I have a very burning passion for that and how to attack that in many different ways. And that's one of the many questions that I ask and I do go from time to time to interview at different organizations and agencies is how important is representation and how diverse it is at the the organization, which always brackets up into sometimes an extended conversation about the different methodologies and uh, tactics that uh, the organization may use to help balance out their their workforce or their ideas to be more diverse. Yeah, I know you and I met at uh, the AIGA Awards Gala back in April. It feels like that was so long ago. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> we met back in April, and I could tell then, even as we talked, that you kind of had this this big desire about helping showcase other like designers and artists of color. And this might be a silly question, but I'm curious, like, where does that passion come from? It's always been there, but it really came to a head when I was in school, and this is around like our thesis time, and I noticed throughout the teaching of the Swiss style design that that I was brought up on, that a lot of designers that were mentioned that I looked up weren't people of color. And Mm -hmm. I wonder why they weren't mentioned in class, uh, you know, dealing with typography or layout or any other type of design styles. And it became quite a curious thing to me. And so I began to look up the Bureau of Statistics and the percentual mark that people of color have in the design field. And I found at that current time that we make up less than 5%. And that really troubled me because representation is very important. And seeing someone that looks like you being successful in the field is very important as well. So I know that if I, if I don't see anyone that looks like me in the field that is being successful, like my idea of myself being successful kind of dulls down. Mm-hmm. And that can be very detrimental in a lot of ways, especially starting out in entry-level positions when you're you're very hard and strict on yourself and not really tolerant and accepting of failure. 
I would say it's probably even hard if you're established in your career and you don't see anyone that's at a higher level than you are. Definitely. You might feel like this is as far as you can go. Definitely. It's such a, I found that it's such a numbing struggle. As you know, there's a lot of other political things that deal with uh, people of color that you see so often that you become very numb to it. And I'm trying to avoid becoming numb to that. You know, I, I want to continuously pursue on it and try to reshape that model, that, that system that works, that, that's currently in place for designers of color or artists of color or people of color in general while looking forward. What are some ways that you're working to, to make that happen? Right now, I'm maneuvering through, a diff- through, through many different methods. As of right now, I'm still working on my a book project to create an archivable system of books for that, that are made up of designers of color, both old and young, speaking on their different styles and giving their backstory and how these type of issues, how, how they relate to these type of issues and the, the type of avenues that they use and the resources that they use to combat them and to work through them every day. A book project. I think you mentioned something about that when we spoke, right? You were telling I me did. you were just working on it or something? Mm-hmm. How is the project going? <laughs> as of now, it's still going pretty slow. It, okay. As you know, it, it takes a lot of time to do the correct research and gather all the the correct people that I want to start it off with. And I have to really understand for myself the the very precise message I want the first issue to kind of speak out towards and to grab people's attention. And I want it to be friendly, you know, friendly and inviting. I don't want it to be this harsh and hard thing, even though the topic is harsh and hard and it can be saddening. I want it to be an eye opener, encouraging type of uh, series that really uplifts people because that, that's how I want to feel. I don't know. That's how I want to feel. And so that's that's the type of energy I'm looking to put into it and to further it. So it's a, it's a series like, are you going chronologically or what, what's kind of the, and not, I mean, I don't want you to give away too much of it, but what's kind of <laughs> your, your plan behind how this is going to, going to go out? Initially, I thought of splitting up into male, uh, all male series and all female series of young and old, or then I thought about actually doing it chronologically, you know, by last name or by uh, year and the type of work that they did. So it's kind of in a flux to see what best works. I'm trying to garner my attention towards my main base, which is the millennial and like my age group and the the high school senior coming into co- uh, college and discovering the fields of graphic design or other type of design fields. So it's sort of like, a, I guess, sort of like a history book, but not really like a textbook. I guess I'm mm-hmm. trying to see like how it could be applied in a practical method. And the reason I'm asking this is because we've had a lot of design educators on the show. I mm-hmm. tend to talk to a lot of design educators. And I think that they tend to be aware that they know that they're not teaching a diverse curriculum in terms of ethnicity or race or even any other sort of factors from what we currently see, mm-hmm. but they have no idea where to start. Like I gave a workshop last weekend and it was at a design museum. Mm-hmm. And I, I mentioned, you know, about how we need to start seeing more designers of color writing and like putting works out there that contribute to design history. And then I like pointed to the bookstore in the museum and said, I bet you if you go in that bookstore, you're not going to find a single book in there from a person of color at all. What does that say when you're trying to do your research? Because people will find revision path that way. Like mm-hmm. I'm doing research for my thesis or I'm doing research for a paper and I found revision path. Like that's humbling and helpful. 
but also what I'm doing here is just kind of it's it's all it's digital, you know. Mm-hmm. Does this survive whatever the next wave of media is going to be? Maybe, hopefully, right. you know, knock you on know. wood. But it's not but a it's, book, you know. Right. Yeah, and I, I remember if I'm if I'm not uh, mistaken, I remember you mentioning a similar point when we met at the AIDA gala. So it, I think the best way, because I, I find it hard too, to kind of figure out where to start. I think the best thing to do in terms of getting started is to think of it like a design problem. You start with the issue. What is the issue? Now there are the issue has multiple layers because it's it's grounded in you know uh, multiple layers of racism and classism and other things. So I think really is finding that one to two issues that you can really focus on and write it out, like you said, and just get it out there. And then you can start figuring out the best way to visualize that because we live in an age now where people's attention spans are very short. Mm-hmm. At most, you get six to 10 seconds of their time. So while I want this to be a book and something that can be kept forever, I know that I have to think about that time spent that I have. So it, it can't be something that's overly long. It can't feel like a textbook. It has to yeah. feel like something that's enjoyable to read. And potentially it can grow to to work with like icons or animation, short animations to kind of even talk about that same information or showcase that same information. Yeah, trying to find whatever that right, I guess, format's going to be is going to be important. But as long as you're still out there, you know, doing the research and collating all the information, I mean, that's a good place to start just doing that, you know, attacking it as a design problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that I discovered, and this is something I just discovered fairly recently, is that you know, we can go back and try to find historical things about design from, say, I don't know, like the 40s, 50s, 60s, etc. Mm-hmm. It's amazing to me how difficult it is to find design things from like the late 90s to the early 2000s. Right. Which is not it- that long ago. Because like everything, you know, doesn't exist on the Internet Archive. There's a good bit of stuff, but not everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's amazing. I was doing research actually for a... Uh, for this podcast I'm doing for work and we're doing a episode about the it's a, a retrospective of blogging tools because a lot of these early blogging tools like live journal and stuff they turn 20 next year mm-hmm. and so you know I'm doing my research and we're finding like the person who created live journal like the co-creators of blogger etc and we put it forth you know to the producer and the producer kind of pushes back like well do we have anyone that's not a white man and I'm like, I don't know. I mean, not to say that we weren't or that other people of color weren't creating blogging tools back then, like back in the day, but it was pretty difficult to find someone that was like really like that was a person of color that was working and doing that back then. That's not to say again that it doesn't exist, but it was really difficult to find. And I don't know if that's just a lack of documentation or if we've just done like a really bad job of archiving because so much of what we do is just replaced with the next version. You know what I mean? It's not done in additions like a book. No, you know, not at all. A I website, mean, if, we, if, it gets, if it gets overwritten with a new design, like that's it. The old design is gone, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And we, and we both know that, you know, history is written by the victors. So mm-hmm. a, a lot of our history is, like you said, written off or erased because it's replaced by this new information. But like recently, I, I even just found out about the, uh, as a as a designer, how good W. E. B. Du Bois was, and mm. all his hand drawn work of infographs of African American life of the 1900s, and how he showcased 
uh, many visuals of data dealing with city and rural populations and and how he assessed the household value uh, and kitchen furniture owned by Georgia Negroes and so on and so forth. Like it's the information in the data is like out there, but it's just as as you said, it's really hard to find. And yeah. there's no direct resource or collection of resources that we can go to and read through and find this information. Granted, we do have museums with all of this, but it's scattered everywhere. Mm-hmm. So that, that makes it, as you said, hard. And, and that's why I believe it's taken me so long to, to kind of collect all this information and to gain the, visual, uh, the visuals and, and figure out who to directly talk to to get more information about this when there are a lot of people who just don't know. I need to see if there's like a museum of the web, because I, I, I'm pretty sure that a lot of early, early stuff that black folks and brown folks were doing online back then is not even documented anywhere. To go back very briefly to the blogging tools discussion, there was a tool that I, I remember this guy, it was a black guy who made it. I cannot remember the name for the life of me. Like it's, it's cause I've used it. I just don't remember what the name of it is. And so if I had to try to go back and try to look for say blogging tools on, on Wikipedia or something, it's mm-hmm. probably not going to be there. I mean, it's probably going to come to me in like the middle of the night. It'll just like pop into my head and I'll remember it. But then it's like, okay, how do I take that and then put it somewhere where someone else can discover what it was? You know, I even think about, say, for example, blogging. So we're talking about the whole blogging tools thing. You know, blogging itself, it really kind of came to play in the early to mid 2000s. There were award shows, you know, you started hearing more about bloggers becoming journalists and things like that. And I think even now, as we see, like some of our top journalists right now, they started as bloggers. Mm-hmm. All their old stuff is is gone, you know. And it's, who's to say that even it's documented in any sort of way that people know that that's where they came from? Right. So, I don't know. I think about a lot of that stuff because I started the Black Web Blog Awards back. And I, I don't mean to make this all about me, but I started the, <laughs> the, the Black Web Blog Awards in 04. And I did it specifically because I didn't feel like we were being recognized. Right. And I wanted to give us a platform because nobody else was seeing the work that we were doing. So I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I just, that's something that's been on my mind a lot lately is how do we preserve the history of the work that we've done from like the nineties and two thousands and it doesn't get lost or whitewashed in any sort of way. Right. So I was writing that down because that, that, I, I want to think about that further. Yeah. How do we preserve the history of our work? I think the exciting thing about that question is that it brings up another question. How do we keep in contact with everyone and, and how do we find someone to trust with maintaining that archive of information and data mm-hmm. about everyone? And like, even after this year, a lot of information and stuff that some, a lot of our uh, fellow designers have done may disappear. Um, so like who, what system can we create and who can we trust to keep that together as a continuous thing? And like, what is the processes or the methodologies we can create to have that continuously updated and so on and so forth. So it's really interesting because it's hard to think about You always have to find the right way to do things and that may take time. And by the time you come up with the idea to do it, it, everything has changed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it seems like we're, we're always in this fight against time to make sure that we are not forgotten and the work that we've done is not forgotten or as you said, whitewashed. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I'm really just concerned about that happening because like you said, the history is written 
by the victors. And that's not to say that we haven't been victorious, but when you write out the victories, then what's left? Right. You know, were we just only consumers? Uh, even as I think about how works that we've created ended up getting kind of pulled into the mainstream, like for example, I don't know. I'm I'm stretching this this metaphor a lot, but like dances, <laughs> like like popular urban dances, and how they end up making their way into video games and stuff, and right. get renamed, and now it's not even what the original source was. It's been remixed and changed to something else. Like mm-hmm. you know, it's it's a whole bunch of stuff. It's a whole bunch of yeah. stuff. I know for a while we had a a lot of we had this big period of creation, but not really about saving and archiving it in a way where we can go back to it. 10, 15 years from now, and it's all preserved. Like, I'll, I'll give you another. I have so many examples. I, I swear I'm not trying to make this all about me. Another <laughs> example. Have you heard of Urban Box Office? In a, in a small way. So Urban Box Office, and for people who are listening who don't know, this was something that was around maybe about, like, the the turn of the century, like 99 to 2001 or so. UBO was this huge like rapidly growing black like media tech organization they had this very popular god what was the name of that blog i forget the name of the blog but the guy who wrote it his name was crispus addicts like mm-hmm. the guy who got shot at in boston like the first casualty of the of the revolutionary war i think and it was about like celebrity i mean it was celebrity gossip and stuff but still and sarah honey young who's been on the show she, I think, was a designer at UBO back then. And she, I remember her telling me about how they had this big party on Ellis Island for New Year's Eve. And, like, you know, that's a big deal. I mean, you, you probably mm-hmm. can't pull that off now, certainly, but in terms of <laughs> national security. But in terms of how big it was, it was that big. And then it just completely crashed and burned, like, mm. overnight. And the history of all of that is largely lost to time it's even something we encountered when we were trying to put together the oral history of the organization of black designers a lot of what we uh, the reason it wasn't oral history is because we had to seek people out to talk to because there wasn't a lot of stuff online stuff had either not been updated or it was just old and we had to dig through the internet archive to find the 2009 version of the website you know what i mean like it was a whole right. bunch of digging into newspaper archives to find things like it was very difficult to kind of pull everything together, but then nothing was also really documented in a way where we could easily find it. And so it worries me as we're creating all these works that, you know, by what, 2050, like people are going to look back at 2018 and be like, what were they doing? Like what, what happened? What was going on? We, we may have right. no idea. Right. Yeah. Not, and, and I think the earlier, the earlier we start, the better it takes a lot. But that shouldn't deter anyone out there listening. That shouldn't deter you or me from <laughs> collecting this information and processing it and, and making it available to everyone. And it shouldn't be, I don't think it should be anything created that people have to pay for, but like it should be free. Like this is like information you need to know. The more you know, the more powerful you are and the more intelligent you are and uh, the more diverse your ideas will be when creating mm-hmm. and going on so forth. And I think it would be a, a great asset for even organizations and agencies that aren't as diverse to kind of reach back upon um, and look at it and understand like, oh, this is what comes when, you know, when when, when we pull from diverse ideas or, or a diverse pool of people. Yeah. We talked about this, I think it was earlier 
in the year, but Stanford's research libraries, they acquired like 50 years or so of work. Maybe it was 50 years. Maybe it was less than that. But they they acquired a lot of work from Cheryl D. Miller, who we had on the show back Mm -hmm. during the summer. And I mean, to me, that was so important because for her, and she told me this, like when her and I met in person, all the all of her archives of work and everything that she saved, her thesis and everything, was just sitting in boxes in her basement. And <laughs> it, and like someone from the Knight Foundation had requested to speak to her, and they acquired it. So now all her work lives on in a research library of one of the premier learning institutions in the country, in the world, really. Wow. That's what I want to see for black design is that mm-hmm. it ends up being preserved in a similar type of way, you know, right? like I'm, I'm sort of giving like a slight side eye to the national museum of African American <laughs> history and culture, because like y'all should be doing this. We, we went there, me and some people from the show went back in July at the end of July, we went to the museum. Uh, have you been yet? Have you been to it? Not, not yet. I haven't had the opportunity to go as of yet, but I do plan on going soon. Yeah, it was. Oh wait, that was in July. That was August. It was the end of August. It was okay. It was okay. Ooh, just okay. <laughs> that that does not make me any more excited to go. It was okay. So like when you go into the museum, they have these three basement levels, mm-hmm. and they say that you can you know sort of start there. So you start at the bottom of the basement, the third level, and then there are these series of ramps that you walk through and it's supposed to take you from like the 1400s or so up to now. I think that part is extremely well done. The upper levels feel like a bit of an afterthought. Um, mm. And I think that that's probably because those are meant to be more rotating exhibits. I think the thing that we were probably the most, the most disappointed in is how art was treated within the museum. A lot of the the showcases and displays are very interactive, like for music and for film, Mm-hmm. Um, it all looks really well done. They've got like a hip hop section. I think they've got part of one of the things on like the second or third floor where it's like in a subway car or something like it's really nice. And then mm-hmm. you get to the part with the art and it's just on these white walls. Like there's not the same level of care and thought put into the exhibition design as mm-hmm. it is for everything else. And we were just kind of like, Oh, that's it. <laughs> I thought that would, I thought they would, like do more with that or something like or at least mm. talk about how design plays into music and film because they're all on the same floor yeah no no well I, I think i think there's a lot of stuff that that goes on especially dealing with artists and their their artwork that they are very particular about how things are showcased because from the time i worked at the museum and speaking with curators and other editorial staff and understanding that Artists can be very, very strict and particular about their work. So even the simplest of like wall color and how things are like written in text. So it's I can understand probably why they chose to go with the more plain and and simple treatment. But I mm-hmm. do definitely side with you about how how they kind of it sounds like they they led lacklusterly with you know having all this interaction with every other floor and then you get here just like a blah. Yeah. So. Because also what it feels like is, or at least what it, what it makes me think about is, yes, it is a, a it's a, a museum of history and culture. Feels like it's more about history, not so much about culture. And even the culture part is very specific parts of the culture. It's, it's historic, meaning that it's mostly things that have already happened. But mm-hmm. there's just not, I don't know, I just felt like there could have been more attention paid to the art part. It makes me wonder, you know, as the museum 
ages and as time goes on, how much of what's going on right now will be included in it, particularly as we talk about the web and everything. I mean, mm-hmm. I was surprised that there wasn't really more of a, or not even say more of a focus, but not really that much of a focus on like STEM fields when it feels mm-hmm. like within the past 10 years, there's been a lot of talk about STEM education and going to Silicon Valley and starting businesses and entrepreneurship and all that stuff. And eh, didn't really see that at the museum, but it's not, I guess it's not their job to keep up that much up to date with it. But I don't know. It, these are all very like weird, heady questions that I have late at night when I'm trying to get to, get to sleep. Like, <laughs> like, how are we going to be preserved in the future? You know, like, what can we do now to ensure that in the future that we are presented in the best light? And, it, you know, that's why I really like doing this with Revision Path, because it's in people's own words. They get to say what they've worked on, what they've done, et cetera. And it's just it's out there. Definitely. It's. And I, I think that's something I, that keeps me keeps me up at night a lot too, thinking about what the future holds. But again, I have to you know recall myself and recall my thoughts and think of what's happening in the present and what can I use in the present to kind of push that thought. You know, it. Yeah. I, and and I think also as, as the museum ages too, it will pick and choose and hopefully be malleable and flexible enough to integrate a lot of what's going on and a lot of the changes, you know, mm-hmm. hopefully it'll, it'll jump on a lot of design trends and changes. Cause I know that's dealing with like the directors of design and other creative staff that I know they, a lot of them are working to make the, the brand of a lot of museums more flexible and open to change and not just this very stiff and staffle thing, which if, if I might speak freely about the Whitney museum, which is very like, strict and direct and like it, it, it's not a lot of room for openness and flexibility within the system and how things are like showcased and shown. Yeah. And I don't want to put, you know, the entire onus on the national museum of African-American history and culture, because they are a fairly new museum, but I do know it's like one of the few museums of, for people of color in this whole like Smithsonian group of museums. And actually, I'll give you a, a, a contrast to that. We also went to the National American Indian Museum, and it it had this portion where they showed all of these depictions of how Indians are portrayed throughout, like advertising and media. And then mm-hmm. they had these. I mean, it was so. It was it was what I thought I would have seen in the National Museum of African American History and Culture in terms of you got to interact with the actual pieces and see like what people thought about it and why it was depicted this way and everything. It was more of a, it was a mix of everything. It showed how all of this stuff is connected Mm. uh, in a way that I didn't see at the national museum of African American history and culture. It Mm. felt very detached. Whereas at the national American Indian museum, it was like, no, this is all part of a whole collective consciousness of how people feel about American Indians. And this is how it's been done through design and art and media and film and advertising it's all connected so right. that's what i, I that's think, what i wanted to see i i think the 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 separating issue between the two is that the visualization the, the visualization of african americans in media and and culture is still such a taboo and hard and complex thing to discuss not saying that the 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 opposite for uh, native americans mm-hmm. is not as complex but I think because we're in such a very sensitive time and there are people on both sides arguing very hard about, you know, how we are portrayed and 
you know, yeah. whether something is a stereotype and if it should be connected to our culture and so on and so forth. So I think that's where some of the detachment may come from. It may not feel as a unified system in, in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, even sometimes I find it hard to connect to a lot of the things that are shown in different museums about African-Americans. And, uh, you know, I, I may feel detached and not understanding how to connect in certain ways. But that may be from my own personal ignorance of the history of, of what I'm looking at. But I think things should be created and designed well enough to where you immediately connect almost like on a, a kin, kindred spirit type of type of thing. Because mm-hmm. that, that's what it sounds like that you had when you were going through the uh, you and your colleagues were going through the Native American Museum that you, you connected on a kindred kindred spirit type of level that you that everything just felt connected. Yeah, just the way that it was all laid out was all it was all just very connected because I think it was a I think the whole thing was about like stereotypes of the American Indian and then they showed like this is the definition of a stereotype and then it showed how these stereotypes contributed to perceptions of Native Americans and all this you know these sorts of things um, and I, and I get what you're saying in terms of how. There are people, at least with that on both sides, that feel like, yes, it's okay. No, it's not okay. Mm-hmm. I think it's pretty it's pretty well known. Like, you can't really, like, you can't talk shit about black people and think you're going to get away with it. <laughs> no, I mean, not at all. I mean, we're recording this at the time, and I know it's going to air, in, you know, in the near future, but we're recording this at the time where, you know, Megan Kelly's about to lose her show over that over this little, like, conversation that she had about how she thought blackface was okay for Halloween. That, which I... Absolutely, <laughs> or like, there's no way that Megan Kelly did not know that. Like, Megan Kelly, you you've been on the air for some time. You've had your own show for some time, and there are many instances you you've met with many of uh, famous African American people, and you've had plenty of conversations. So you should you should be well aware. You you've been around for a while. You should be well aware of what's okay and what's not okay. Like ev- almost everyone in America that's not. A blatant racist knows that blackface is very inappropriate. I think you're giving her far too much credit as someone who is not a blatant racist. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she came from Fox News, and I, I, I we don't want to get overly political here, but like, she's she's a she. I, I get what you're saying in terms of like she should be old enough to know better. At this stage of the game, I can't put it past people, if, <laughs> and I'm, and this is not this is not to give her a buy in any sort of way. I think mm-hmm. she probably knew exactly what she was doing by saying that, because mm-hmm. uh, it's not the first time that her her uh, her tenure at NBC has been called into question because of some weird racial remark or some weird transphobic remark or something else that she said that wasn't, as she puts it, PC. She's very proud to call herself a non-PC person, but mm-hmm. each time when she's exhibited that, it's gotten her in trouble. Mm-hmm. So maybe this is just like the last straw. <laughs> And then, like, NBC carted out her black coworkers to talk about it. I was like, no, that couldn't have been me. I'm like, I don't want to talk about it. Don't ask me about it because I it's, can't curse on the air. Don't ask me about it. It's confusing because sometimes you're like, okay, I see you recognize me. But are you just pandering to me about this issue? Like, Pretty much. Yeah. yeah like, 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 really... like, NBC brought their three black people out to talk about it. <laughs> like, what the all hell? the three people. <laughs> Like, come on, come on. Anyway, I don't want to. I don't want to focus too much on that. But I, I mean, I'm saying that to say that you know, the the depiction and the perception of that stereotype is something that should be at this point well known and well aware in the collective American consciousness. Mm-hmm. That perhaps in a way it still hasn't reached that for Native Americans, which is sad, especially as they still have to go to 
to bat with negative perceptions and and things like that. So, Uh um, yeah. I'm curious. Let's talk, I want to talk to you about kind of the notion of a black design aesthetic. As we were speaking earlier, talking about books and, and making sure that black designers are contributing to the design history. One, one piece that I normally bring up a lot is this essay by Sylvia Harris. That's mm. in this book by, um, it's in a book by Stephen Heller. It's an anthology called The Education of a Graphic Designer. And so she has this essay about, you know, searching for a black design aesthetic. And then she kind of like breaks it down over, like different eras like she talks about it through the 40s and i think she starts at the harlem renaissance i think and then Uh, goes to like 40s and 50s 60s and 70s like black power movement hip-hop etc i think it stops in the 90s because she's passed away now so i think it stopped right around that time but it's something that i've been thinking about certainly as technology has come into play because the notion of a black design aesthetic i would say is an ever-changing concept and largely it has started to become I well, I don't I don't even want to say that. I don't want to say that's true. I was gonna say that it's largely become a lot more worldly across the diaspora. And I feel like that's in large part thanks to Black Panther. But when when you think of that term of a black design aesthetic, what comes to mind for you? Black design aesthetic. It's a hard thing to describe, you know, because it's very subjective. Because it, it can depend a lot on how you were brought up and like what you are able to interact with. Cause I know there are a lot of people of color who don't see themselves being comfortable in like black groups. So if I had to give an example of the, the African-American aesthetic or the black aesthetic, I would bring up Elijah Rutland, the 19 year old Flor- Florida A&M university mm-hmm. student who created, I'm sure a lot of listeners know about this meme, the black Roth meme for all being from the, the early 2000s show, Ed, Ed and Eddie. And I would say, like, using his own experiences and relating it to pop culture, like, mm-hmm. that, that's showing the Black aesthetic. Like, I like to think, and I'm going to sound very pro-woo-woo Black people, but, like, I, I, I enjoy my culture. And I, and I enjoy how... We're very we can... pro-woo-woo Black people here, so please, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just really, I, I find it really beautiful how we can take even the most harshest of our situations and recreate it into something beautiful, like a meme talking about our interactions with something that may be depressing or something that may be to someone else like triggering, like black is said it is using Like I think black people are so diverse and so we're so good at taking almost anything about our lives and our experiences and creating something beautiful and magical in order for us to relate or express how we truly feel about that situation. Cause as I've said and discussed before that we've become numb to a lot of things, you know, since there are a lot of negative things in the, in the media showcasing who we are and how we act. Mm-hmm. So like when I think of the black is said, I think that it's just a reflection of how we express and interact and engage with our everyday culture and experiences as a person of color. If yeah, that makes sense. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, really, you know, when I think about that, a lot of that has taken place, I feel, in a much more widespread and almost viral fashion because of technology. Like, think about Paula's Best Dishes, that hashtag, where the the news that came out about Paula Dean, like, you know, treating the servers in her Savannah restaurant racist and saying the N-word and stuff. And then, you know, yes, that's really bad. This is a woman who is a businesswoman. She's also a cook, a television personality. And then how people sort of turned it around, mostly black people on Twitter turned that around (laughs) into like this rolling raucous. I mean, it went on for days and it was hilarious. 
all the different like Paula's best dishes, basically taking a popular soul food dish and putting like a slight little, you know, spin on it, you know, like KK, <laughs> like KK crab cakes or, or, oh, you know, something like that, you know, like just, this, <laughs> just, just kind of just a little, you know, a little, <laughs> the internet has no equal. Whatsoever. None, none. But then when you look at, say, for example, how, uh, if we, you know, kind of look at design, it's interesting how black design aesthetics are always, and not always, but I would say by non-black people tend to always veer towards the, like, harmful stereotype. Yeah. Like, for I mean, example, there was like an art director's club thing where, this was maybe back in like the mid-2000s or so, but they were trying to, I guess, emulate the whole Pimp My Ride aesthetic mm-hmm. that was going on and like they had someone on on their ad campaign like wearing a a backwards hat with a crossed arm pose and a lot of rings and chains and it's like we don't do that anymore what are you doing oh like, god yeah <laughs> oh god yeah like what, what is, what's going on here what is that <sighs> trying to pander to to the the more diverse audience they would say yeah but and, and a lot of times on those teams, there aren't many people of color to help say like, hey, that's not what's in right now. And I don't think you guys should use that. Uh, like it, it's that's when diversity comes back into who's on your team and how they can give their voice on that. You know, having, you know, at, at, that's that problem that a lot of I think designers of colors in all levels have a problem with is having a voice at the table, you know, when instances like that come up and. You look back like, why did they do that? Like, that's such a terrible stereotype of us. Mm-hmm. But again, that's going back to us being able to use the Internet and not take <laughs> things serious and actually re-memeing that, you know, and, and creating something even more beautiful from the the ill-designed choices that may have been put out from a, from a, a non-diverse team. Yeah. And when I say that I feel like, you know, Black Panther has started to exacerbate it, it's because this is something which had such mainstream appeal, but was also very specifically a story about black people that I don't know the number of Wakanda themed or Wakanda esque kind of stuff that I saw come out of that movie was amazing. It's like, it's like nothing I've ever seen before in terms of how people really latched on to the concept. I mean, just in general, like the sort of, I don't know, technological pan-african cons i mean there was even a wakanda con like there was even mm-hmm. a convention around yes. you know i guess the 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 concepts that spawned from from the movie which is great which is what i want to see more of i want to see more of us getting inspired by us you know mm-hmm. and and moving the conversation forward into the future in that sort of way and so you know my hope is that the aesthetic tends will will hopefully evolve in that same fashion. But I think what, and this is probably something we can both agree on, is that there is no singular black design aesthetic. Oh, no. No, no, no. Not at all. And to go back on your point about the Black Panther uh, effect, is that goes to show you what positive representation can do. Mm-hmm. And and the, the, the ripple effect that it has on everyone, like for the princess of Wakanda, Sure. There were sure there there are a lot of young black girls that are dressing up like her and like that feel such such a connection to her because they see 
another because you know it's owned by disney now so they're like oh i can be that disney princess you know another black yeah. disney princess that i can relate to it's like there's all these positive image images of black people in this movie and like wealth and royalty when we're always you know per, uh, uh, perceived as you know thugs or any other type of negative imagery which yeah you know which which can be disheartening this shows you the ripple effect of what positive imagery can do for the group like and that movie just flourished because of that and mm-hmm. our community flourished because of that and it's such a beautiful thing that i hope continues to happen as you know ryan coogler con- continues to direct movies and other black directors come into the field and other black actors come into the field and expand the craft and continue to do more beautiful work like that. And, and I mean, you know, and, and, you know, black Panther is certainly like the big financial and cultural success story out of this, but you know, he also comes by he, I mean, Ryan Coogler, like comes in a time where there, we have all these kind of very prolific and visible, like black directors, black Mm -hmm. actors, kind of like black multi hyphenates, that are doing like a ton of great stuff. And I think what is really helping to contribute to the notion of a, of a, a a varied black design aesthetic is that not everyone is trying to tell the same story. Right. Like everybody's not trying to talk about Kings and Queens. Some of them are Mm -hmm. talking about thugs, but then some of them are also talking about just like regular everyday mediocre stuff, you know? Um, Uh, I oh, I saw this. Uh, have you seen the show Rel on Fox yet? Have you seen that show? No. Oh, I've, I've heard of. I've I've even met the 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 guy. He's pretty funny, but I haven't watched the full episode. But I've seen clips. So the 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 most recent episode, and it sort of speaks to kind of what we're talking about. The most recent episode has the the group. It's Rel. It's his uh, best friend Brittany, his brother whose name I don't remember, and their father played by Sinbad, and they're mm-hmm. watching this movie. And, you know, they're talk they're talking about how it's supposed to be like the best black movie of the year. And it's like, it's so woke and all this kind of stuff. And it starts out and it's called Frederick Douglass Zombie Slayer. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Frederick Douglass is a zombie slayer. And then I'm, I'm totally giving away the episode, but whatever you can, people can watch it on demand, whatever. But so he, at some point in the movie <laughs> meets Harriet Tubman and they have sex. And it's oh like, wait gosh. a minute, what? And then they meet up with Malcolm X <laughs> and they're all still fighting zombies. And then they meet up with, I think it's Quavo from the Migos Quavo oh, or God. offset one of the two. And it's like, wait a minute, this movie is horrible. Like, it, like the depiction of all this and the massage, like Brittany, the, the woman in the cast is like, you know, the misogyny because you know, this happens to Harriet Tubman and y'all sexualize Harriet Tubman and blah, blah, blah. And then rail gives a speech at the end. Like, you know, we should be glad that black portrayals have gotten to the point where we can be this mediocre and it's still okay. And it's not like a stain on the race or anything Mm -hmm. like that, you know, because you have the one thing that now has to represent all of us. There are many things out there which represent all of us in a lot of different facets. And so you can have something that's as bad as the concept of that movie and people still like it. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a when you when you get a chance go watch the episode. It it, it made me think afterwards because I wasn't expecting it. Like it kind of snuck up on me. I was like, oh yeah, that's true. I get that. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's beautiful moments like that in television that that are happening more and more. And as we're seeing more black act, actors and actresses come into the limelight, that yeah. as you say, people can appreciate. Especially with uh, if we're going to talk about black films that I think are 
that are on the level of Black Panther, the movie with Daniel Kalula when he was in Get Out for, what's the director's name? Uh, Jordan Peele? Jordan Peele. Yeah. Like, even that had a great effect on people because it, it told a story, which he, he said, this is the documentary. It shows you the perspective of uh, black people in this crazy world. Yeah. And a lot of people were just like, oh, this isn't real. I'm like, no, like, this is what you think because it talks about appropriation and plays on the stereotypes that people believe. You know, I've had discussions with many people, like in lifts and Uber rides, about, oh, black people are just genetically better for basketball. And that's not, I'm like, dude, that's, that's not true. If you wanted to be a basketball player, you could be just as good as any NBA player right now if you've worked as hard. You know, granted, they may have had different opportunities than you and mm-hmm. may have worked, you know, 20 times as hard given their situation. But like their genetics and, and, and ethnicity as the African-American or black or however they want to identify does not guarantee them athleticism. So yeah. it's, <laughs> it's it's interesting, you know, and, and I do like how even though. There's a lot of points in that movie that shouldn't have been funny, but they mm-hmm. were just hilarious. We, we can go on about, about movies. No, 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 no. I, I, <laughs> I get exactly what you're saying. I, I, I'm even thinking, and I mean, we're, we're eventually going to bring this back to design. Don't worry. But I'm even thinking of uh, the latest season of Insecure, for example. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Issa Rae is such a phenomenal success story of someone who like had this idea, put it out there worked on it, iterated it, moved up, moved up. I mean, and it's still moving up. I mean, we don't want to say that Insecure is like the pinnacle of where she can go with her work, but certainly right now it's the visible ongoing thing because it's going on now. It'll be four seasons. Uh, mm-hmm. the, fourth, the third season just ended and it's going to have a fourth season. And it's interesting how that show, of course, it's a show that sparks a lot of conversation when it comes out, but it's something that sort of came from the internet in a way like it's of the time it's a very like it's not trying to be this uh epic history or anything it's like this is this woman in la and she has like stuck in a bad job and like weird relationships and like it's just the story just is what it is mm-hmm. it's just average regular black people living their lives <laughs> i feel like that's the hopefully that's where when we look at the notion of the black aesthetic, even the black design aesthetic, that it just kind of sort of normalizes into, I don't know, just our everyday sort of life. I, yeah. I had an I had an animator on the show a few years ago, Tanisha Foreman, and she does a lot of these very like weird, grotesque sort of work, like boogers and slime <laughs> and all this kind of stuff. And it's really great work. I mean, really super detailed. She's dope. And I asked her, like, does she ever feel like or has she ever gotten criticisms about her work not being like for the culture because she likes to draw like, you know, decaying bodies and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. and we, I mean, it was a good conversation for people that are listening. You should you know definitely go back and, and listen to that episode. But I think it's, it's a testament to the fact that she's able to do that and still like get work. And it doesn't have to be about a certain thing. She can just give her aesthetic to what it is. And that to her can be what, a black design aesthetic is. I don't know. I just feel like we're at the point now where there's so many different varied uh, perceptions of what it is. And that's a really like beautiful thing that it can't just be, or shouldn't just be one particular notion. Right. Yeah. 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 So bringing this, you know, back to design, I know we've kind of spent a lot of this conversation (laughs) just talking about, you know, creativity and artworks and stuff in general for you. What advice has kind of stuck with you over the years when you look back over the work that you've done, when you look back over your career, 
what's that one piece of advice that's really stuck with you? The one thing that's that's really hard on me right now is, is from my mentor, Forrest Young, who 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 works at uh, Wolf Allen Allen's mm-hmm. at, as of current, and he's currently traveling around. Something that stuck with me a lot about how to maneuver as a, as a, as a designer of color. He just said one word. He said Nick four X, and what he means by four X is do you know work four times as hard. You know you always hear the 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 phrase. You know you got to work twice as hard to get half of what they got. Mm-hmm. He pushed it in further. He's like you got to do four times as much. And uh, another thing that I that that has really stuck with me too is I'm, I'm I recently got into a show called Vikings on Hulu. Okay, and the the. A character called Ragnar said this thing called, uh, he talked about power and he talked about how power is given to those who lower themselves to pick it up. And the reason why that stuck with me so hard is because in, in, in the community, you know, we always ask, oh, I want to be this. I want to get better and better and better. And we forget that we have to focus on the now to be able to do that. You don't worry about someone giving you power. It, it's, it just naturally falls upon you. You know, because of the hard work, because of the four X type of work you're doing, and and I think those right now for me, that's really what's what's working hard on me right now is four Xing everything that I'm doing and working hard and you know not giving up and pushing and pushing. Um, mm-hmm. Because in a city like New York, there, there, there's going to come a lot of time that you're going to be rejected um, going through your career and you're going to fail a lot and you're going to come down. And I just remember those words that you know Forrest and even my brother tells me like, don't give up because there's a lot of uh, blood, sweat, and tears that's pushing me for, you know, from family and for myself that I, you know, that I can't fail. So those would be like the top three things, you know, 4X everything, which is coupled with the, you know, lowering yourself to, to pick up power when there's, you know, when you're not really looking for it, when it's just coming your way mm-hmm. and not giving up no matter what the circumstances and also following your passion. So those are like the big things for me. As of right now, as I'm getting older and continuing through my career and finding out exactly what I'm meant to do as a designer, as a creative. So, yeah, that's yeah. that's kind of where I am. Uh, I may have over over arched it. No, 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 that's, no. What, what would you like to see more of from the design community? More representation, first and foremost. And our willingness to talk about the taboo. There's a lot of nuances within the design community that need to be talked about, that need to be showcased. And people, are they going to make people uncomfortable? A hundred percent, yes. No matter what you do, whether it's good or bad, you know, you're going to get criticized. So why not bring it up as a topic, talk about it, and create a dialogue about it? Because I think that's really important to create a dialogue, which, you know, creates a better understanding of the topic, of the issue, which can have it further be refined and, you know, talked on further. I have, uh, so, to, I have to ask, give me an example of something that's taboo that we don't talk about so we can talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, specifically in the design community? Yeah, we're going to well, go there. We'll go there. Well, well we, won't, we won't spend a lot of time on it, but I'm <laughs> curious on what, what that would sound like. Well, with the coming years from 2016 to, to now, you know, there's a lot of different conversations going on on how to represent the LGBTQ plus community uh-huh. and design and how they are visualized and how that group is visualized and represented and talked about and different languages that you have to use to to talk about them and also since that is this since that has a strong connection to the black community too like that creates biases in how we create things too mm. so i think 
that's a hard taboo because I can't speak for everyone in the black community, but I know that growing up, if you were a part of the LGBTQ plus community, like it's shunned because of, you know, religion and people say this and that, and that creates biases in your head when creating, just like with uh, non-people of color, when they're thinking about, you know, people of color and putting them into like design ads or anything, they have that implicit bias of how they were raised. So like stuff like that, having better discussions of understanding and acceptance on that, I think is a, is hard for people. It's, it's kind of like a taboo because it's like, it's that soft ice that you don't want to walk on and break, be the first person to break, but like it needs to happen alongside many other things. Okay. One thing we try to have, you know, every year here with Revision Path, and I have to say it gets harder and harder every year to do this is we do an LGBTQ month mm-hmm. um, because I feel like that's an important perspective to show. I mean, just like we do an HBCU month, we mm-hmm. do that because we, I want to show that there's diversity in what could be perceived as just a monolithic set of, of people, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll tell you, it becomes harder and harder every year to find people who will talk about it. And and when yeah. I say talk about it, I don't necessarily mean like just bring up, Oh, these are the struggles. But even just to say, I'm going to come on the air and talk about it during this particular month. Um, right. I'm, not, I'm not naming any names, but I've had people even this year who like agreed to come on the show. And then at the last minute, they're like, you know what? I thought about it and I don't want to put myself out there like that because it might affect my job and blah, blah, blah. And I, I get it. I get it. You know, LGBTQ people still aren't fully protected in this country from a number right. Of civil rights. So I get it. And certainly I'm not trying to put anyone in harm's way by having them come on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also I realize it's more difficult to tell their story and for them to talk about it when that kind of, you know, unfortunately when that kind of discrimination exists. Right. Um, it is very unfortunate. And and there's even the taboo between people of color and people of color who are part of the LGBTQ plus community like even connecting on, hey, we're both depressed. Yeah. Like it should be okay for us to come together and talk about how we are connected via oppression and discuss like better avenues for both groups to understand each other and to help other groups of people understand, you know, everything so that things can be hashed out. Mm-hmm. You know, first it needs to start with a discussion and then action needs to be put into to place. You know, in a natural sense, everyone is, is afraid of change because we, we fear the unknown. I myself can be uh, a test to that because a lot of things that that happen ha- that have happened as I've come to New York has forced me to change. Like I've had no other option but to change and to expand my horizon and my viewpoint on a lot of issues. And it has humbled me. You know, there there are people that are struggling like you, and unfortunately, as as you said, there are communities that are still not as protected and don't feel as comfortable talking about their issues and you have people who are more comfortable and, and more free to talk about these things. They don't, they, it's hard for them to understand like, Oh, why don't people come forward about this and talk about this Yeah. without relating? Like, Hey, they don't do it because if they do one for some groups, they can be deported for others. They can be fired because of their views or this and that. Like granted there, there, there are, there are a lot of limits on, you know, what you can say about people because you know, you have to, you have to be respectful. There's a level of respect and consideration that needs to be had with people. So it's, it's so complex. You know, it's, it's hard for me to talk about it because I don't have, you know, 100% all the information and facts on it. So No, but I, I, I totally understand what you're saying. I, and uh, hopefully people that are listening, they get that too, that, I mean, there's still mm-hmm. isms and other structural issues that 
still keep us, still hold us back, which is a shame. Mm-hmm. Where do Definitely. you see yourself in the next five years? What kind of work do you want to be doing? Next five years? How old will I be in five years? Ugh. As career-wise, next five years, I, I hope to be more established as a designer and have a larger plethora of experience and skill sets to share. And hopefully I'm in a position where I can reach back and pull the next person up who shares that same drive and passion to achieve their goals. And hopefully I'll, I'll be working towards to building upon or collaborating with nonprofit organizations back home in Detroit, Michigan that help people of color dive into the the, the graphic arts or the, the fields of art and design in general, because I, I don't see it a lot. So I, I want to improve upon that. Like I, I'm, as, as I've said before, I'm very passionate about that. I'm very passionate about representation and having those opportunities and coming from an underrepresented community and having family members who haven't had as many great opportunities as I have had. I would like to be a part of creating those opportunities and creating those connections between the the two people, the two groups that allow them to feel comfortable enough to to reach those goals and reach for the stars like that. Yeah. My mom's family's from Detroit. You can't beat black people from Detroit, I tell you. <laughs> can't beat them. Cannot beat them. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? To find out more about my work, you can visit my website at that's nick.com. So that's Nick T H A T S N I C K dot com. You can find me on Facebook at Nicholas Johnson. You can find me on Instagram at September's Very Own underscore underscore. Or you can leave me a message on my website. Um, I'm a pretty open book type of person. Feel free to ask me any questions. That's where people can find me. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Well, Nicholas Johnson, I want to thank you again so much for for coming on the show. Thank you really, I think, for just having this conversation with me about creativity and design and the black design aesthetic. And I know we did, you know, touch briefly on your career and you mm-hmm. know, usually on the episodes, we try to go more into it. But, you know, I tell people that, you know, no two episodes are the same. Like we just kind of go where the conversation goes. So I'm glad that right. we're able to just kind of talk about that. And I think that for the audience, they'll be able to tell they can sense your passion for what you do and for representation and for your work throughout the conversation that we've had. So I'm just glad that you were able to come on the show and uh, and share that with me. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. No, thank you, Maurice, for having me. You know, it, it was definitely a privilege and I would welcome the opportunity anytime in the future. So yeah, I, I just wanted to thank you for reaching out and allowing me this opportunity to speak and to to connect with you and your listeners about these issues. And if any of them feel feel comfortable enough to reach out to me to further talk about it, I am, again, open and a very transparent person. Thoughts of love are and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Nicholas Johnson and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Nicholas and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Did you know that people spend over 3 billion minutes daily on Facebook? With an audience of over 2 billion users, that's pretty impressive. People use Facebook to share and connect with the people they care about, and their experience is the core of the Facebook design team. Sound interesting? Then learn more about Facebook design and what they do at facebook.com forward slash design.
Glitch is the friendly community where everyone can discover and create the best stuff on the web. If you're new to Glitch, then just pop on over to the homepage and explore some of the featured projects or categories to try it out. It's like a familiar app store, but almost everything is created by regular people just like you. And when I say regular people just like you, I mean everyone from students just learning how to code to some of the best programmers at the biggest tech companies in the world. They all use Glitch, and they're ready to help you out if you get stuck. Visit Glitch.com today. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well, including us. MailChimp really gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, then please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute or two. It helps more people learn about the show here in the U.S. and internationally. Um, It helps more people just find out about the show in general by bumping us up in the rankings there for Design Podcasts. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.